Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Rilson. I'm your host today, of course. I'm joined by my usual partner in crime, Samuel Luckhurst. We're going to sink our teeth into the latest Manchester United news, uh, mostly with a big prominent story across the weekend of Omar Barada's switch from Manchester City across to Old Trafford. So not too far away from that he had. But Samuel, a big story across the weekend. What were you doing? Well, I, I was not doing a great deal at all at the, t- at the time. It, it was, as, as people who live in this country know, it's not been the best of weather over the weekend, and it was a, it was a quiet one. But when the news emerged, obviously, I think we were awaiting a statement at some point from United, and it, it came quite belatedly, which was, um, I suppose, rather in keeping with the way they operate. But it was, it's, it's, it's a coup for them. It's, it was an open goal, um, and they. they they took their time like, trying to see, you know, shape up a shot and, and try and take it. But they, um, it, it felt like they missed it in, in that sense. But the, the actual, you know, the appointment is, as we'll get on, is is positive. Well, you just described it as a coup. It does seem like that. It does seem very significant. Um, a very well-respected figure in the industry. He's done some fantastic work with Manchester City, who, of course, we don't need to remind anyone of being England's leaders, leading football team. There have been some allegations over some uh, financial uh, misplaced, we say, but we might get onto that a bit later. But anyways, uh, a fantastic appointment, which should be uh, to become Manchester United's new CEO. Well, it's it's it, yeah. I think the, it's a real statement of intent from from Ineos. I mean, it was quite quite amusing this attempt to. Although it's because of the fact that the regulatory approval hasn't been granted, that the Glazers are still the decision makers, the power brokers, as if, okay, you know, this is technically a Glazer decision, but it's 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 in your saying this is our chief executive can you announce that he's he's going to be um he's going to be appointed uh it's it's the end of the glazer rule at, at manchester united and uh, i think there were a lot of supporters um of, of, of certain demographics who were, were skeptical of Sir jim ratcliffe and ineos because they were pro pro qatar um for, for geopolitical reasons or just they saw the money and they thought that's going to be the, the panacea uh, for all the ills even though there's FFP and profitability and sustainability rules as well to, to um, factor in but you know Ineos they, they do know what they're doing they've, they've embarked on sporting ventures before and I think this is confirmation that they know what they're doing because it seems like a very smart appointment Barada's been at City for nearly 11 years I don't think you survive in that environment uh, that long, uh, unless you're doing a good job, he he's, he clearly went there at a similar time to Farron Soriano and Chiki Begiristein, where essentially they were trying to get the people in place uh, ahead of Guardiola's appointment. I mean, there was a lot of legwork that went into appointing Guardiola. Probably, I think, possibly there were discussions that, that, that were held before he was even appointed by a Munich coach in early 2013. Um, yeah, you know, City did a hell of a lot of work to ensure that he would he would come in, and Pellegrini was obviously that stopgap as well for over a three year period. And City, as you say, have been the best in class in just about everything, whether it's running a football club, whether it's having stadium expansion, new training ground, recruitment, uh, the coach, the the way they play. And yes, that, that that could all drag them down to the National League if these 115 charges stick. And clearly there's there's something all right there and it's been you know it's been in the works for quite some time. Obviously, you know, they they were banned from the Champions League by UEFA, but then their appeal was successful on the Court of Arbitration for Sport and look 
I think people are always going to say, however good City are, however great they are, and they have been a great side, that mud sticks and you know, they've got these... At the moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think that that's possibly why a lot of United fans are relatively sanguine when City do well, because it's there is this sense that it's it's tainted by um, by alleged book cooking. But we'll we'll see where they get how how far they get along, or when it actually is um, is heard by the Premier League these these 115 charges. But despite that, you and, and despite the state ownership which morally there are issues there that have been well documented as a football club if you are judging them as a football club they are extremely impressive you, you can't help but be impressed by them and taking their uh, I think it was, he's the chief football oper- operations officer um, or he was uh, taking him from from Manchester City that that's that's a statement of intent you want best in class and that's why they want Dan Ashworth because he's one of the best sporting directors around and that's got to be the level of ambition at United you've got to be going for the best in class and the best available um, you know, figures to go into uh, heading up certain departments and it also had to be an external candidate you know you, you can't you couldn't have a, a Glazer stooge there Another Bristol had, University graduate no, coming exactly. in Edward Wood yeah we weren't going to have Matt Judge coming back into yeah. the fold or anything like that um, everyone's had their fill of that and look one of the biggest reasons why, reasons why United are still in the mess they are at the moment is because of Ed Woodward, because he was not up to the job and he went about the job in completely the wrong way. Um, obviously, Richard Arnold, he wasn't even chief executive for two years, but he was at Manchester United from 2007 to 2023. And um, although he was a better chief executive uh, or figurehead than Woodward, it wasn't exactly difficult and he, he jumped before he was pushed. And look, there are going to be other, um, we've, we've spoken before about the sweeping changes that Ineos are planning. They started from the top. You'd think now, having got a chief executive in, the next role has got to be in this structure, a sporting director, because you've got Ineos Jean-Claude Blanc, who I think is the sporting chief executive, and you've got Sir Dave Brailsford, who's the uh, sporting director of Ineos. Obviously, Barada will report into Jean-Claude Blanc, you're going to need a sporting director now to report into to Dave Brailsford. And that's the next step for Ineos. And it's it's the right way of going about it. They had to address the structure first. The manager, there are issues of plenty with, but he was never going to get sacked right now. And um, I, I, I think that's, that's overall, that's that's a logical, logical way of going about it. I know there is an argument or was an argument that a change of manager may have been advisable, but... I think they've they're going about it the right way, and uh, they're doing this before they've even received regulatory approval. I mean, this is you only had to look at that statement on that was very belated when it came out on on Saturday evening. That's what I meant about United missing an open goal there, because uh, I think from a comms perspective, they they weren't they didn't react with the alacrity they should do to poaching some from, from Manchester City and it was quite a significant uh, addition as well from City but you read that statement that is not a statement that's been well, run we'll, we'll come on to that in a second it's a, it's a jump up isn't it for Barada because of the work he's been doing at City it, it is a, a, a promotion basically um, but everything he's been doing at Manchester City will feed into this role and he has got the skill set to become a CEO obviously the work he's been doing at the Etihad the statement itself then and the direct quote was put football and performance on the pitch back at the heart of everything we do. 
that is not a Glazer no. statement. And no. it's an acknowledgement of the failures of the last yeah. 10 years as well, isn't it? It's saying, look, we have got things wrong and we want to change. Yeah, and listen to uh, your podcast with, with Rich on Friday and when I think it was brought up, that quote by Woodward about how playing performance doesn't affect what we uh, can do on the commercial side. That is how United have operated for far too long. And I, I, I said someone who used to work at the club, I said, have you not realised that because they kept on reiterating the football is the priority, the football is the priority. And I said, have you not realised that the more you say that, the less people believe it? Because if you keep on having stress to people that football club's priority is the football, something is really not... And all the end of quarter means when they kind of speak to uh, shareholders and we obviously prove to some of those and you get on the calls, it's all just about financial results, financial results, obviously. And to talk about the performance on the pitch, we might be sixth in the league, but we're top of the engagement charts and we're top of the financial charts. Yeah. And, and that just... And that, that just really tested fans' patience, that didn't it? Because yeah. if you say well, we're fifth in the league, sixth in the league, and you can't be celebrating financial results. Yeah, and they they changed the script on that. They used to um, they changed it so that Woodward spoke on the football uh, matters, and then Richard Arnold would get to brag about the app rating and how many uh, shirts they've sold and things like that. Essentially, they threw threw Richard Arnold under the bus instead. And look, there was some very like football can make some very it it never ceases to amaze how many people in football who are very successful have got more money than God. They go into football, and football makes them look stupid. And it did that with Woodward. It did that with Richard Arnold. And obviously, Jim Ratcliffe will be conscious of that as well. He's been an extraordinarily successful um, uh, individual, and if you dip your toe into but football probably not particularly in football yet Samuel if you look at Lizanne who I did a feature on the weekend this time in Switzerland that was his first adventure in the sport obviously for OG Nice they're starting to pick up a bit this yeah. season but they have had mixed results and yeah. a few managers come and go but it's felt like those clubs have been a stepping stone to Manchester United yeah. I and mean, he's probably learned from those mistakes and he's now getting the right people in place and those experiences are only going to stand any arse and Ratcliffe in good stead yeah, and I don't think, look, no, nobody outside Lausanne is going to care about what's going on at Lausanne. And that's probably the case with... Um, you're, trying to, you're trying to say no one cared about my article, Samuel. That's not what you're trying to say. No, no, no. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was an illuminating read. But of course, when, you're at, when you go into Man United, uh, you know, you've, you've got to brace yourself for, for a number of reasons. And, you know, whether it's Ratcliffe or Dave Brailsford, uh, their their reputation, they're, they're putting their reputations on the line, essentially, because the perception at Manchester United from anywhere else is is completely different. And as I've said before, I, I maintain it's not the biggest football club in the world. It's I'd always say that's Real Madrid, but it's by far and away the most scrutinised sporting entity on the planet, by far and away. So we're talking about that kind of multi-club ownership briefly then, because... I mean, as I said, any also in a few other clubs have obviously got investments in other sports. Um, but Barada, I mean, the Manchester City Football Group, they've kind of got clubs all over the world now. Girona as well, they're flying in La Liga. I think he was involved in a bit of their success where, through City Football Group. So could his experience be a part of why he was so attractive to become a CEO? Do you think a multi-club structure is going to be kind of part of Ratcliffe's thinking with United? Could we see players maybe going alone or use them as a feeder club? I don't know if the workmen outside are trying to drown out uh, you, you, your question. What they think of my question. Yeah, possibly. Uh, I, I still think that with with City and that Abu Dhabi takeover in 2008, they hadn't won a trophy since 1976. 
uh, United are a different beast altogether. I mean, may, maybe that's Ineos's intention to have them under this umbrella of football clubs scattered across the globe. But it's it's almost like this this is a dreadful analogy, but it's almost, almost like the DC universe and trying to cobble together Batman in with Aquaman and Green Lantern when you just leave Batman on his own because it's a, it's a big enough character it's a big enough franchise can you there. do your Batman impression since we did had a Van Gaal no, impression on no. the the, well, it, it depends which we'll one is it, is, it, is it Keaton is it Bale <laughs> is, it, is it Pattinson but no I, I won't get into that one uh, I, I, th- I think my, my, if anything I think my Bane impression is it probably would trump my uh, Christian Bale Batman impression but I'm not going to do that either and yeah obviously it, it helps that Barada has, has has got experience of in a wide range of, of sectors and it was yeah fascinating reading his um, his interview he did with Cy Bykowski I think in September 2020 which of course was an interesting time to say the least given the the pandemic and the, the financial um, issues clubs encountered and and also the, the I suppose the the general dismay that football clubs were still spending certainly in city scales they still spent over 100 million pounds whilst businesses the NHS were, were decimated and, and you know other and, and families had monetary issues understandably and uh, he you know he, he came across reading that interview and it's quite a lengthy interview as well he, he came across really well uh, touched upon recruitment quite heavily and I think the first words he said on, on recruitment are we spend smart and I think some United fans have gone into his Twitter history at the weekend see what he said about them in the previous well, he posted life. an article in, was it 2014 and it was Manchester United like, spent more than 25 million overspent by 25 million on Angel Di Maria and things like that United, how did United get in this mess I yeah. think it was the headline and he posted the article yeah 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 I think um, I mean <laughs> If, you know, quite, quite, um, yeah, quite, quite, you know, quite the set of cojones on him to do that, given that. I like that would, though. I mean, he was showing a bit of personality. Yeah, that's, that's he, it, just, I think clearly someone at some point told him to to stop doing that, well, that because was of his the kind position. Of air push durable, and you could still kind of yeah. show a bit of personality on social media in 2013. Yeah, yeah, and it it clearly flew under the radar yeah. because nobody had heard of him, and pretty much every United fan wouldn't have heard of him until Saturday tea time as well, but. City are proof that they they know what they're doing. They they know how to run a football club properly. They've been the polar opposite to United over the past decade. It has been like night and day, and that's reflected in terms of uh, both clubs' performances. City have won the title how many times? What is it? Five or, or six since Sir Alex Ferguson retired. They've got to two Champions League finals. They've won the Champions League. They've won two FA Cups. They've won God knows how many League Cups as well. United, it's two League Cups, an FA Cup and a Europa League. There's there's reason for that because City have put the best in class um, at every level that really matters. United have not been about that. It's been about who's compliant, who's on our doorstep, um, who's not going to rock the boat. It's not got them. Um, it's not gone very far at all. Seems um, relatively media savvy, I'd say. I was searching some interviews on Sunday. Uh, obviously, I was out on Saturday night. So we just discussed before this podcast, but do a little bit. Of Is research. that why you didn't respond That's to the, the message? Is anyone to, on this? <laughs> I just had to get my excuse in there, basically. In fairness, you were off. I was off, and I ended up. Was doing Ty it. the last on shift? Yeah, but he, so you know, he, 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 he was quite happy watching the Masked Singer or whatever it was. He's to blame in this in this scenario. Um, but there is a fair few interviews out there for Barada, and he talks quite well. He does seem like a very good communicator. Um, I saw Ratcliffe come in, and I mean, 
the deal hasn't even been officially signed off by the Premier League yet, but he's already communicated more than the Glazers have in the last 18 years. And this seems like a positive new thing with Ineos and Ratcliffe, where we're actually, Samuel, getting some communication from the football club. And although Parada won't start until the summer, I do get the impression that he will go on record and will do some interviews about where he sees the club going, his vision, etc., which, again, can only be promising. Yeah, and as I said, he, he, he spoke on the record to, to the MEN in, um, in, in, yeah, in 2020. Yeah. Uh, John Murta, Richard Arnold, Ed Woodward, you know, in terms of manager sit-downs, they've, they've not done that with, with the MEN, and that's because the, the comms department at United doesn't quite, isn't at the level that it should be, whereas City's comms department, they, they know what they're doing. Or certainly they've got a better grasp on how to... Um, go about things and you know there, there is a different dynamic there as well in that city um you know city see, still see themselves as more of the, the the more manchester club uh because they say look we're in manchester united they're not even in manchester they're in they're in trafford or stretford and I, I, I get all that um but it is strange the way united have gone about it like we you know we I think it's common knowledge that we did have sit-downs with Woodward, but they weren't on the record. He went on the record with with a fanzine, which was, um, you know, not knocking that at all whatsoever. But we were all perplexed as to why he'd go on the record with a fanzine, but he wouldn't go on the record with um, the national press or the national media or the Manchester Evening News. Which... I mean, people can make their own calculations or conclusions why that is, or surely. Um, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. See, yeah, yeah, it took me a while to twig there. But uh, as you said, look, the important thing is communication. That was one of the issues with, um, like, Sheikh Hassim. Like, the, the, he was, I, I can't do it justice, but a season ticket holder, I've, I've, I've met him a number of times. He's a, he travels home and away. Um, Paul Finley, he, he, when it, the news emerged that the, the Qatar had withdrawn, he said, imagine being upset that we're not being bought by some bloke from the Middle East who seemed about as real and genuine as Santa Claus. <laughs> well, our, our podcast producers who were sitting in this room, we did laugh with us last week. Was he even real? Was he just well, that, That's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. And look, it seems like they've reacted badly to the SEC filings um, saying that they, they couldn't provide proof of funds last week. And it's all ancient history now. I mean, frankly, I, I don't care. I don't think anybody really cares because they're not going to be buying Manchester United. That their pitch was, it ticked every box, but uh, the guy, you know, he, he was almost like a phantasm. Nobody nobody could doorstep him. Nobody could, um, you know, norm you can even doorstep the Glazers. But you did find his Instagram. I did, yes. Revelation I, yes, I did. I managed to track him down as far as that, and, and he did not accept my follow request, uh, unsurprisingly. But even Avram Glazer, who was at Davos last week, you know, you could doorstep him, but you can't doorstep Jake Hassim. So the fact that Ratcliffe has, as you say, he's already been uh, communicative with, with the supporters and, and journalists, and that you know, they've, they've not wasted much time whatsoever. I mean, it's not even been a month since since the Christmas Eve announcement that that Ineos were coming in and already they've they've settled on on what what would appear to be a very smart and impressive choice of chief executive for the club. Completely agree. Uh we'll leave it there for part one. We'll be back in a moment for part two. Welcome back to part two of the Manchester is Red podcast. Now just a quick mention to Tyrone Marshall's and Rich Fay's Midweek show 
I'm led to believe it's called Rough and Ready, Samuel, after talking to Rich on the last podcast, which is an interesting name. Um, but they'll be back uh, in the middle of the week. And as I've mentioned a few times now, me and Samuel have the kind of the start and the end of the week. So the Monday and the Friday on the Manchester Israel podcast. Um, my headline for a piece yesterday is, I mean, you've just discussed uh, Dan Ashworth there and the importance of getting a sporting director in next. I feel like that's the, the last piece of the jigsaw coming in now. You've got... Barada there, we're starting to see this hierarchy. So they're they're going to need a few players in the summer. Well, well, I think so. I think so. I think that's quite obvious, to be yeah. fair. I think the jigsaw has got one big piece <laughs> in, and then maybe another big piece, and then there are quite a few others well, too. We'll uh, take a trip to Harrods and buy a few jigsaws, because I think that's what we're going to need. Um, but Dan Ashworth, we've talked about a few times on this podcast. He's obviously in the northeast with Newcastle. We've talked about his work with West Brom, with England, with Brighton, of course. He's fantastic. Um, Ineos, keep, this kind of phrase keeps getting thrown around, the best in class. Barada fits that profile. Ashworth does too. Um, he would be a huge appointment and an equal coup as, as we've just discussed with Barada coming in. He would be, yeah. And it would be interesting to see how swift or whether it takes a bit of time for, for Minios to, to get a sporting director in. But they do need someone who's going to have, who's going to be known. Um, it's, it's not going to be like Barada, I don't think. I mean, Omar Barada, uh, as, as I said earlier, very few people outside City, I think, certainly as far as sports go, will have will have heard of him. But that's that's different from a sporting director. Most people know who the most reputable sporting directors or head of recruitments, whatever you want to call them, um, directors of football in, in the world are. And it's it's obviously in Ineos's and United's interest that they get someone in who who's going to be yeah, really on the ball, who's who's got. Uh, who's, who's got the clout, who's got the CV and knows what they're doing. And look, with, with John Murta, since he took over as football director at United, you only have to look at the signings and the way they've gone about some of those signings to know that he's not, I don't think he's taken full ownership of it, uh, which if, if you're going to be the guy overseeing recruitment already, you're, you're on shaky ground there, I think. Well, Myrna's progression has been really interesting, aren't there? Because he started off evident in the rules, the different positions that he's kind of had along the way wouldn't traditionally be route to becoming football director at Manchester United. And uh, it's always been, well, the, yeah. the implications being that he never intended to be so heavily involved in recruitment either. So, and he ended up in this role. Yeah, that's that's what I was told. And look, at which point you think, well, sh- should he have said something? But if you're getting offered that job, would yeah. you say anything? The The... Look, again, we we come back to Ed Woodward. It was it was his call, and he was telling us two years earlier that we're close to appointing a technical director. They didn't, and then two years later, it's a football director and a technical director. And you know, I think it was quite a, an innovative way of going about it. And Darren Fletcher is 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 still in that role, and he's like the conduit between the academy and the first team, and he sits in the stands during uh, the first team matches with with the analysts. So it's it's more of an analytical eye on on things. With with Murta's role, as soon as he went into it, I, mean, I think one of the first questions was, why is it a football director? Why is it not a director of football? They even they, they couldn't even phrase it as a director of football. But you only have to look at the signings. Um, I mean, Jane Sancho had been in the pipeline a long time. Rafael Varane, okay, you know, United made him a made him a target uh, he was their main one that they wanted to come in as, as centre half they got that Ronaldo only came in because an ambassador made a beeline for him because he was going to go to Manchester City and under Ten Hag apart from Casemiro 
who you know John Murta did a lot of legwork on in terms of meeting people at Real Madrid and meeting people at Real Madrid quite early on in the summer with that one most of the, those the signings under Ten Hag they've been Ten Hag signings no two ways about it and that's why Ten Hag is not getting a lot of sympathy in Mid United's plight this season because it's his team it's his squad his fingerprints are all over that that squad in unfortunately for him in, in, in quite a, a negative light now because of, of how poor the United have been this season and if you're if you're a sporting director or a football director who's overseen recruitment and there's no discernible pattern in, in terms of the way you're going about recruiting players you're not really doing your job are you yeah. yeah and look in fairness you go back to 2019 and they, they talked about the cultural reset and that's why I find it laughable that you've got pundits now saying they need a cultural reset. Look, they had one nearly five years ago. It didn't work. You've got to do, you've just got to do the right thing. You don't need a buzz phrase or a buzzword about it. You don't need to sound holistic about it. We don't need to sound like Jake Humphrey must sound like on his podcast. I've never listened to one. But you need to have a clear strategy. And in fairness, this whole thing of we want players aged between 23 and 28 and we want them to be British. It's like, okay, you know, you've you've narrowed you've narrowed the field down a bit, but that's that's a clear outlook. Of course they abandoned it after about five months because they signed um they signed Bruno Fernandez and I, I found it quite bizarre this whole thing of look, we want them to be British. It's it's important that they're British because at that time was that adv- the advisable way of going about it? No. Now you look at the the depth of talent. I was England say, the talent talent back in twenty eighteen English players wise, I mean yeah. it wasn't very deep, was it? And Harry Maguire and Juan Bissaka were that most highly rated English players and look how they've ended up. Well, and, and you look at it now and it is advisable, a lot more advisable to go for yeah. Madison, generation, for generational talents yeah. in, in the England Jude team. Bell. But it's Harry Kane, oh, no, I don't want to deal with Daniel Levy. Fair enough, Jude Bellingham, he wanted to go to Real Madrid. United made a beeline for him um, four years ago. I reckon Declan Rice would have been attainable, but they didn't. They decided not to go near near him either. Like In terms of their recent summer transfer window, there's one thing that was lacking in it, and that was ambition. Because you look at the England player that they did sign, he was in the last year of his contract, and if I had the choice of... Mad- I know it's different positions, but Madison, Rice, Kane, Bellingham, Mount, the last player on that list that I would want, and I've said this at the time, would have been Mount. He's been a disaster so far. Hoyland was not an ambitious signing, cost a lot of money, but that was not ambition. Anana... He knew the manager. And the rest of the signings are Loney's or Johnny Evans coming in because he'd been released by Leicester. The way transfers are going to work then going forward, I made a point a couple of months ago when there wasn't as much pressure under Ten Hag and I said it could be really interesting when Ineos and Ratcliffe come in and the way they want to work with their policy and how that will affect the manager because Ten Hag, to some extent, has been given a lot of free reign over... He's not always got everything he wanted, of course, and there's been higher targets that he's missed out on. But as you said, his fingerprints are all over this squad. So if then he's going to work with a recruitment policy and a sporting director that's saying, hang on a minute, we want to sign these kind of players, I suggested that could rock the boat a bit. Um, Good. Well, I think you and Ty played it down at the time. But and now we're starting to think Ten Hag's probably not going to be here after the end of the season. I personally think he's probably not going to be any arse's man. I mean, there's a lot of months ahead and things could change but it does kind of feel that way and if a new manager comes in they're probably going to have to work within that framework as well aren't they yeah and 
that that's the way it has to be as well. And I know that you can have friction between manager and hierarchy if... I think that's, na- that's natural. To, it's, there's always yeah. going to be a little bit, isn't there? Yeah, like the, the manager will want a player... And hierarchy will say no, no, no. And and look, this was happening under under Mourinho. United were vetoing some of his targets. The difference back then was that it was Ed Woodward who was vetoing it, or Ed Woodward claimed that oh no, the recruitment department said don't go for that player. Like, who's in the recruitment department? Where is this recruitment department? It was it was almost you know it was like where's Sheikh Hassim? It was, Samuel, it was kind of for like anyone who's listening on an audio device, Samuel's kind of looking around the room there, gesture. But, but we, <laughs> when we were told about this recruitment department, we um, as journalists we came out of this. Uh, this chat and we were like what is it it was a question we were asking so have, have any of you heard of the recruitment department no nobody had heard of it it was almost like this, these are people who cover the club this, this broom really. cupboard where some, yeah. some gremlins were lingering just you know looking at I don't know Y Scout or, 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 or opted to see which, which players would be uh, worth signing for Manchester United but as you know the when when they gave us chapter and verse on their recruitment reboot in 2019, it did sound in certain ways quite impressive, but there were a lot of things that really did undermine it as well. I think one of the quotes was something like, um, Solskjaer, he, he, would, uh, he would not tolerate a third, um, a third choice for a, a certain position. And I thought, well, if one and two say no to you and you absolutely have to get a player for that position. You, you're going to have to go to your third choice. But I don't think United ever really got there with most positions apart from with Van der Beek because you had Grealish, you had Madison, then you had Van der Beek and Solskjaer did treat him like someone that he just didn't want. With Ten Hag, I mean, Ineos will have to lay down some ground rules there. I th- I'd advise one of them is if you think Voss is getting any players to ask, think again. Because we're not going down that road. That it's mean, it's but, caused too much. Adam from the director's box as well. <laughs> he's, I mean, the guy. He's a heavily the, visible presence. For, for someone so experienced, he is extremely tone deaf. Um, because he's he's having pictures in the dugout. He's having pictures Call in the tunnel, home, calling it home. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's too close to home. Uh, and, I, and I know he's not exactly moved too many players to United. But, you know, the, the, there are things that people are, are hearing as well, which are, are not reflecting too well on him. And it doesn't reflect too well on Ten Hag as well. The, the sheer, the amount of money they paid for Rasmus Hoyland, a 10 million euro loan fee for a backup defensive midfielder who's going to miss a month at least of the season due to AFCON. That's really bad business as well. And of course, these two moves coincided with these two players being rep- becoming um, changing representation, moving to to SEG. Uh, th- this whole focus on the Eredivisie, like it's not a coincidence. I know Ten Hag has downplayed it, and yes, he has wanted certain English players, and United haven't been able to get them. But you didn't always have to go to the Eredivisie for these players, and. I come back to the point about in terms of City and recruitment. I think the only player they've signed from the Eredivisie uh, during Guardiola's time, or possibly during the Abu Dhabi ownership, was Angelino. Of course, they re-signed. They had a buyback option on. They came, he came in for six months again. He was dreadful. He was culpable in some really bad defeats to, um, or certainly significant defeats to Liverpool and United. They shipped him off in the next transfer window. It's a failure, but they went about it in, in the right way. Like, bring him back in, see how he does, not up to it, off you go again. You're never going to get that with, with United under the, the, the current way they, they go about business. I mean, they're having to give up academy players away because 
um, that their, their track record with sales in for, for a long, long time has just not been good enough. And they're having to you know, recoup as much money as possible, whoever it is, Iqbal, Charlie Savage, Matteo Mejia. I mean, you know, here's a profit because they're in our academy, but they're getting minimal fees for these players. And City, I, go, I, I know I've mentioned him before, but James Trafford, highest level he played at was League One. And um, they get twenty million pounds from him, which is as much as United got for for Dean Henderson, who I think is, Chelsea... is, is there some revisionism. I think there's definitely a true point, and we've all agreed in the podcast. United should be getting more for these academy players. Um, but for example, I saw suggestions about Ted Amendi recently. That was a nominal fee as well. It wasn't very much, but yeah, he's had success at Luton. But when you look at his injury record and stuff, wasn't many takers. I know there was interest from France actually at the time, but then Luton came in for a good package. Um, Charlie Savage. Redden is struggling in League One. He's I think the I think with Mengi there is revisionism. Like at the time, it's like yeah, this lad's just got to go. He's got to have a clean break. But I suppose um, the fact that he got a move to a Premier League club, you maybe thought, well, should they be getting a fee where they can actually tell us what the fee is? When 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 the club are not telling you what the fee is, you know it's 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 next to nothing. I mean, they uh, they they decided not to um, disclose what the loan fee for Van der Beek was, and I can imagine. I think I wrote in my piece. There's that scene in Moneyball where they're um, you know they're, they're discussing a trade, and Brad Pitt says, "Okay, can you um, also stop my vending machine of soda for three years?" And you're thinking that's probably the price of, of Van der Beek's loan fee. Who's Brad Pitt and who's John Heller? Me and you. Don't answer that. Don't answer that. Um, but I disrupted your rhythm before because when you said if you were Ratcliffe and you were seeing it in Hog, let's say three priorities. Your first was Keys Voss. What are the other two? I wouldn't say Keys Voss is my first priority, but it's, 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 it's you know so it's kind of like, yeah. like tongue in cheek. But yeah, it's it's got to be that. Um, it's it's got to be look. We're going with a recruit. Look, this is a, a recruitment specialist. This is the way he operates. Work with him, and then. That's probably the smart way of going about it. You've got to be succinct. Ten Hag um, doesn't feel like he's, um, you know, he's he's had his power revoked, so to speak. It feels like it's a, a two-way operation. There, it's it's a collaboration, and I don't think also that uh, Ten Hag's not stupid. He's he's going to realise that his hit rate in recruitment has has not been good enough, but there has been. Martinez has been a success of sorts despite not playing, barely playing this season and he can point to that um, and, and he can maybe you know offer mitigation or context on, on other deals that have not panned out or developed and the players haven't developed at, to, at the speed that he would have liked but it's got to be collaborative and if, if Ten Hag is saying look there's this player in the Eredivisie then I think someone's got to put their foot down do you believe that he believes that his uh, transfer strike rate has been hit and miss? I would say he would still defend it. I mean, he was defending it the other week, but he was uh, he was living in the past because he was talking about it. People were saying uh, last season. I was thinking, yeah, that that was last season. That was you know what, what was you know last game June June the third. Um, that was that was seven months ago. A hell of a lot has happened since since then. And you look. As in every industry, as I've said before, you're judged on what you're doing, not what you've done. Nobody's going to be saying what a great player Casemiro has been for United because he last started a Premier League game on on October the seventh against Brentford, and he was hooked at half time because he was hopeless in the first half. Some training ground chat then, Samuel, to end the podcast. Uh, United are open to relocating from Carrington. I mean, they only moved in. I'm saying only moved in in January 2000 from the Cliff, but 
Is that a long time? 24 years to be a training ground? Um, I mean, I mean the, the, the cliff is obviously goes back. It felt like they, they were there since since forever and it, they, it's it's still theirs and they've had the occasional academy game there. I mean, Dortmund trained there a few years ago as well. So it's still, it still has its, its purpose. But it, I think it's, you know, I think it's a relatively short amount of time. Um, ideally, when you're moving to a training complex, you're thinking, well, we're here forever. Yeah. I don't think anybody, when, when, yeah, when Manchester City moved to the CFA, they're not thinking... What are we going to do in a quarter of a century time? They're going to be there until the day I die, probably, and which is hopefully quite a long, say, a long time away. Yeah, uh, but I think you know we've we've both been to Carrington, God knows how many times, and um, <clears throat> just just waiting to get in is an issue. Like City, you turn up, there's a guy on the door, barrier comes up you're into the car park uh, at United you're waiting on a country road and this is just a journalist um, you're waiting on a country road until about 45 minutes before the press conference then you're beckoned through and there's always an excuse we're getting the room ready or this that and the other I mean they don't have a designated press conference room I went last in for the press conference when I was last there I think I arrived at 9.13 I pulled up at the gate and he went no you're only allowed for it at 9.15 I went, it's 9.13 when it's two minutes and obviously there's cars come behind us. And he went, yeah, good point, actually come through. And I thought, come on, a bit of common sense. I know, yeah. I know. It's, uh, it's, 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 so that's, that's, that's kind of strange. If, if you're a first-time attendant in a, in a journalistic capacity at, at Carrington, you're thinking already, this is, this is a bit strange. Um, and obviously you drive up that country lane and uh, fans have cottoned on that it's not private property, which is why they wander up and down there now and they try to be as close to the, the entrance and the exit as possible to, to get autographs or selfies off players. And then you go through the other barriers. And this season, what we've discovered is that the car park is so, so um, crammed and tiny frankly for Manchester United that we're actually having to park up on the grass bank up towards the Jimmy Murphy Centre where the press conference is so more often than not there's not a parking space so we're being parked up on this grass bank with like there's a little pond the other side of it and um it's it's and, and there's a sign up saying no swimming it's, it's it's all quite quite surreal and some of the signage around the place the red has faded on it which is the case at Old Trafford. I think the Manchester United sign, um, this Bobby Charlton stand sign, all of them, they need a lick of paint. They gave the exterior of Old Trafford a lick of paint about 18 months ago. And having all said that, I still do think it's not the worst in the world. I mean, it does get a bit of an unfair rap, but no, I, think the, no. I think the crucial point is it's not best in class. And if they want to be best in class, yeah, yeah it can that's lead the, it. That's the point. Yeah. Uh, look, Manchester United used to take pride in Old Trafford and... Carrington, they were ahead of the curve in moving to Carrington. They were ahead of the curve in getting the North Stand expanded in 1995 to, I mean, it holds 28,000. It's bigger than probably most grounds in the country. That's one stand. They did that in 1995. Then it's, you know, it, uh, an extra tier on the scoreboard ends and the Stretford end in 2000 quadrants in, um, they got planning permission for that, I think, in early 2004. They didn't stand still. And that reflected the club. So Alex Ferguson, more often than not, he didn't stand still. It was always striving for perfection. That perfection may always be unattainable, but it's not going to stop you for trying to get there. They've stood still. And it's just little things. Um, 
you know, there, there are big things as well, but it is little things. Like you see the sign and the red's faded on it and another club would be on onto that like a shot. And at United, it's it's littered all over the, the training complex. And look, Carrington is not... The facilities there are nowhere near as bad as Cristiano Ronaldo made out. Uh, the jacuzzi is not the same as it was um, when when he was there as a as an eighteen year old. They did refurbish uh, the pool area, the jacuzzi in twenty twenty two. The canteen has been refurbished. The canteen is you know, it's quite plush. It's impressive. It's, the it's new modern. academy building as well. They've got the new the academy women's. building that yeah. they installed last year. Um, there are better facilities for the women as well. There are bespoke facilities for the women's team. I think there are about what three or four buildings on the site now. But from from what I understand, the issues they've got with expanding is that because it is quite a condensed area, uh, they don't want to go into the football pitches because, again, it's that we want to prioritise the football. And in fairness, this is a logistical issue. So they're not going to stray onto the football pitch um, pitch area. And they've, you know, it's, it is quite vast. Uh, they must have, goodness me, maybe a dozen or maybe just under a dozen pitches, not, not full-size pitches, but it's it's a huge, huge, um, uh, you know, acreage there. But because it's essentially, you know, it's, it's a country road and there's farmland, there, there's farmland that they could buy across the road from, from Birch Road on that uh, approach to the training ground. But immediately it's, is that the right terrain uh, to be building football pitches, you don't want cabbage patches for for you know, youngsters to be learning their trade on. There are also cables on the approach as well, so that's another issue to encounter. Um, there, was, there was something else I think I, I wrote in the the story, but I'm struggling to um, something to remember. I got now. the article up, so I should be able to help you, um, but I can't. <laughs> I mean, you said prioritise the football. You said the cables and. Yeah, but I think essentially because it's quite a condensed plot and all those buildings, they're not not necessarily cobbled together, but it's, you know, the pitches are so vast and they don't want to stray onto them. So you've not got a lot of room to manoeuvre. I mean, it, it really does need a new car park altogether, but they've not got the room to do that. I think they're looking to install... Um, like a you know quite yeah, a, a plush hut if you like for parents who go to watch the the academy game so they can congregate in an area but even that image at the weekend the the academy of, of won 11 out of 11 in the, the under 18s league and they beat city on saturday but it's it's just it's like going to a sunday league uh, pitch it's just played on one of the pitches at carrington city of course if if it's a home mini derby is getting played at the CFA, which of course well, is an actual stadium. That's just made me think of Lee Sports Village, obviously, as well, because the under-21s play their games there. You've mentioned the CFA. All the academy games are in one place for Manchester City. Yeah. It would be brilliant if that could happen at United. Yeah, that's ideally, that, that's another reason why I think they should knock down Old Trafford. If they can have a mini Old Trafford in there as well, which I think the footprint is that vast that they could do, then that has to be another incentive. And look, there are going to be, you could get even a, a 50-50 split on fans on whether Old Trafford should be knocked down or whether you just uh, redevelop it. It absolutely has to be on that site. I mean, I'd never um, say it should be moved elsewhere. I mean, that's it's been United's home for over a century. But they they really do need their own stadium for, look, the academy is, is this be is it's been a beacon for United in, in, in the darkest of times, uh, whether it was the, the Munich air crash when they drafted in 
you know, youngsters and then they beat Sheffield Wednesday in their next match in the FA Cup and, and on a less mortal note I suppose in recent times it's every season it's the thing to celebrate the worst season United had in decades um, a couple of years ago they, they won the FA Youth Cup you, you're watching Copy Mainu and Alejandro Garnacho excel and look. it was the only positive story that it was 20, yeah. 21 22 that was the only positive story of that season yeah it was. Run and it was fantastic yeah, it was and, and they've and Garnacho and Maynou have been their two best players this season to, you, you could argue I know Maynou was has been out for uh, was out for the first few months but he's come in and he's, he's untouchable already and that's testament to the brilliant work the academy does so you've got to champion it and give them the facilities and the platform that they deserve. And the platform they deserve at the very least is, frankly, to not have to travel to Lee Sports Village and, and play matches there. Um, it's, it's obviously that's, you know, the, it's, it's going to be a long, long way off until they have their own bespoke stadium for it. But that has to happen. Um, whether it's at Old Trafford or whether they can arrange it at Carrington somehow. I mean, I suppose there's, you could build a stadium on what, around one of the pitches at Carrington but again you know in terms of getting building works in and everything that does compromise other pitches and United say they don't want to do that it's the fact that Lee Sports Village got a public transport it's no maybe buses to be fair there's not really trains or access it's just a pain in the backside I'd, I'd always you have favor, to drive you have to drive that's the thing yeah I'd I'd always favour altering them but the facilities are better at this this is what United have said they say that the facilities are better at least Sports Village which they are like it's, as a as a complex it's it's quite impressive and um, yeah, it, they've, they've the thing played. is though Altrinham doesn't get as cold as least Sports Village I've been to both grounds in the winter and you can you can pop into Hale Village and go for go to a nice Italian afterwards or or one of the the pubs there. I, I'd 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 certainly be all in favour of Altrincham. They they've obviously they used Altrincham's ground for a long long time, but I think they've been playing at Lee for about ten years now. It must be so. Uh, it seems like that arrangement is just is indefinite. But hopefully it's not never ending. That's it for today's podcast, and Samuel will uh, have a go at the builders on our way out. So apologies if you hear any background noise, uh, or you have heard some background noise for this episode. And thanks to listeners as usual. Check out our social platforms, uh, head across to our YouTube channel and subscribe. We're ticking across nicely for subscribers. So have a great week and take care. Thank you. Thank you.